Well, good morning, everybody. Man, big fan of Christ and youth. I went to Christ and youth when I was a teenager, and it had a huge impact in my life. And I'm so grateful that, that our student ministry goes to Christ and youth every year. And if you've got a teenager and you'd love for them to go, registration's open for that, and we'd love to take them. And it's just going to be a wonderful time. I also want to let you know that uh, Sonia, right back there, raise your hand. Sonia uh, works for Christ and youth, and she is here today from Joplin, Missouri, to visit with anybody who would like more information about Christ and youth or any questions, just learn more about this incredible ministry that's been going on for decades now. She has a table out there in the atrium and she would love to visit with you um, about any questions or anything you'd like to know about Christ and youth. And I certainly hope that you will go visit with her. Now, if you've got your Bibles, please go to Genesis 34 today. Genesis chapter 34 is where we're going to be. And uh, there's Bibles around. If not, there's going to be scripture on the screen behind me for you to follow along easy enough. And if this is your very first time with us today, I want to let you know that we are in a series right now called Origins. And what this really is, is a chapter by chapter study through the book of Genesis, which is the very first book of the Bible. Genesis is so foundational to our faith. You've heard me say it many times that if we didn't have the book of Genesis, we could not really understand the rest of the Bible or how it all comes together. So foundational. And what is awesome about Genesis is that what is woven through the story is this story of God's redemption. It begins in Genesis. It goes all the way to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And you can track with this story. And as you read the Bible, you see that the spotlight moves from person to person who continues to tell God's story. It starts with Adam and Eve, and then we see Cain and Abel, and then it goes on to Noah, and then eventually to Abraham. And we spent quite a bit of time uh, looking at Abraham's story and how God gave him the great promise that, that he's going to give them all this land, and out of his family would rise up the, the Messiah, and it's blessed the whole world. It's, it's an awesome, awesome promise. Then the spotlight moves to Abraham's son Isaac, and then the spotlight now moves on to Jacob. And for the last uh, 10 or 12 chapters or so, we have been focusing on Jacob's crazy life story with all the ups and downs and curves and turns and his wins and losses and his rebellion and his coming back to God. We have seen it all. Jacob has lived quite the life. So Jacob's a fascinating person. Now, I want you to know that Today, we're gonna to cover a lot of territory. We're gonna cover you know, two to three chapters of the Bible, and, and hope you know this, we are not covering every detail available to us in the text, so I'm trusting that you are reading it on your own. But I also want, for those of you who are new, that uh, when you hear me say that we're gonna be covering two to three chapters of the Bible, please rest assured that that does not mean the sermon is going to be two to three times longer than normal, all right? It, we're not doing that today. So uh, I hope that uh, the Lord will really speak to your heart today. He's got something to show us all. Now last week, you might remember if you're with us, we left off with Jacob and Esau. They were brothers and they made peace. It's one of the most shocking moments in the Bible when uh, you would expect his brother Esau to want to take out his revenge on his brother Jacob, but he doesn't. He offers forgiveness. And that's what all of chapter 33 was about. And I trust that you read that. But after Jacob and Esau make peace, um, um, Jacob goes to try to establish himself or reestablish himself in the land of Canaan. Also, we know it today as the promised land. It was a land that was promised to Abraham first, to Isaac Jacob, and out of them, this great family. So he's trying to reestablish himself here at home. And if you look back at the very end of chapter 33, look at verse 18. Here's what happens right after he makes peace with his brother Esau. After Jacob came from Padam Aram, that's where he was for 20 years, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan. 
and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he brought from the son, he bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set it up an altar and called it Elohoi Israel. So I want you to understand that Jacob now, he's made peace with his brother and he continues to live the same kind of lifestyle that his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac lived, which is very nomadic. In other words, they move around quite a bit. They stay in this area for a little bit, then they pack up their tents, they move to another area, they stay for a while, they pack up their tents, they move on. This is, this is what they do. Now, here's an interesting thing. For whatever reason, at this point in Jacob's life, he decides to buy property. So he's camping outside the city of Shechem and he buys this plot of land and that's where he establishes his family. Now, it's interesting to note, this is only the second time that anybody in the family of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob has ever, quote unquote, owned property. Remember, they're nomadic and God said, one day, I'm gonna give you all this land, but that's years later that's gonna actually come to fruition. And he buys land and he sets up his residence. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Here's a little trick or a trivia question for you. And I, and I like to give you trivia from time to time because I just believe one day one of you is going to wind up on Jeopardy and you're going to need to know this, okay? So here's a little trivia. If this is the second time anybody in this family has ever bought land, when was the first time that they bought some land? If you said the answer for 200 is... Abraham, you are correct because you might remember he bought a field and that field had a cave in it and that cave became the burial place for all of their family. And you might remember from a few weeks ago, that cave today, which has a building built on top of it, I showed you a picture of it, is the second holiest site in Israel. It's the cave of the patriarchs. And that's just a little trivia. I just, something in my heart says you're gonna need that one day. And so there you go. So Jacob's back in the land of Canaan. He's made peace with his brother. He's trying to establish himself. And that would be he, his four wives, his 12 children, all of his male and female servants and all of their livestock. It's a pretty good group at this time. And we come to chapter 34. And I just want to tell you, at the beginning of here, as we get into chapter 34, we are entering into what will be one of the darkest seasons in Jacob's life. I wish I could tell you that, that this is one of those glorious chapters of the Bible but it's really not. It's, it's going to be one of the darkest experience, an awful experience that this family's ever going to have. So much so that you can read the entire chapter of 34 and you will not see God's name mentioned one time in that chapter. Now think about it. We're in the book of Genesis, the foundational book of the Bible. And we're going to read a whole chapter and God's not even talked about one time. That right there should tell you something about the season that Jacob and his family are moving into. So they buy this property, they're trying to establish themselves, they're trying to live at peace with everybody, but you and I, we've all lived long enough on this planet, we know that we may, not want, we may want peace, but not everybody around us wants to live in peace. You got a neighbor like that? Not everybody wants to live in peace. And this is how chapter 34, verse one starts. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, that Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. And I'm just gonna stop right there and, and say a few things about verse one. Dina is, as far as we know, Jacob's only daughter. Now we know all about these 11 sons that he's got, but this is the only daughter. Can you imagine what it must be like to, to grow up in a household where you got 11 brothers and you're the only daughter? I just had a curiosity, any of you ladies grew up in a house full of boys? 
All right, and what's that like to have just nothing but brothers all around you and you're the only female in the house? You can kind of relate maybe to what Dina is feeling. So when it says that she, you know, they're camped right outside of this city, they can see the city, it's in view, you can understand maybe why she wants some, some, to spend some time with some other ladies, her age perhaps. So she, she wants to go to town. Now, now there's a little bit of a head scratcher here uh, because if you know anything about the culture of the day, it's, a, it's an era, um, and, and many parts of the world it's still like this, but it's an era in time, in culture and history, where a single female just doesn't get up and go on her own all by herself to the city. That just doesn't happen. There's, there's a cultural norm here, and the cultural norm of the day was that she would have a, a chaperone, whether that be a couple of her brothers, maybe that would be her father, or uh, another male in the household. So it's a little bit of a, a head-scratcher why she's, she's doing this. So we ask the question, was she naive of the times? Was she being a little bit rebellious? Is this a rebellious season of her life? The, the Bible doesn't answer these questions for us. It just raises some questions for us. They're like, why did she go all by herself? That would have been outside normal custom of the day. But you know, there's a bigger question that gets raised in the text. And maybe you didn't realize this when you read it on your own, but I'm gonna raise it for you. And the question is this, why in the world is Jacob living so close to the city of Shechem? Did you wonder about that when you were reading this? Why? Because if you have tracked with this, and we didn't cover every one of these details, but if you go back a couple chapters and you start to unpack the things that God told Jacob to do, God told Jacob to go home and he told him to go to Bethel. We read about that in chapter 31. We also know that he's supposed to go to his father's place, which is in Hebron. And this is not Hebron. So follow the trajectory. He makes peace with his brother. We didn't read this part, but he, he sets up his tents at a place called Succoth and stays there for a while. Some people speculate maybe even a number of years. And then he packs up again and he decides to move right outside the city of Shechem. You know what this says to us as we read this? He's supposed to go to Hebron and he doesn't seem to be in a hurry. God told him to go to a certain place and he's taking his time. And we're like, why, Jacob? Why are you taking your time in obeying God? Why are you dragging your feet here? Why are you outside of Shechem? It certainly gives the appearance that maybe, just maybe, we're not mind readers, that maybe Jacob is kind of reverting back to his, I got it, God, thanks. You drove for a while. I'll drive the next leg of the trip on my own. It's hard to say, but it looks like he's doing his own thing. And when you get to 34, chapter 34, it's really going to show that Jacob's doing his own thing. I'll tell you, when we disobey God and we choose to do our own thing, we can put our family and ourselves in danger. I think about today, maybe it's not physical danger, but when we disobey God, we can definitely put our family in spiritual danger. And this is what we're gonna see in a very extreme way in Jacob's family in chapter 34. He is not obeying God. He, he buys land, which gives the impression, I'm gonna stay for a while, maybe forever. And I'm not gonna do what God wants me to do. And he endangers his family in the most extreme way you can imagine. Now, with that little backdrop, let's go to verse two. When Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, okay, he sees Dina all by herself. I'm telling you, Dina will encounter the worst kind of evil a man can have in his heart. He sees her and he took her 
and he lay with her by force. In the next verse it says that his heart was drawn to Dina, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman, spoke tenderly to her, and Shechem said to his father Hamer, get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dina had been defiled, his sons were in the fields. Remember the 11 brothers? They're out working. So he did nothing until they came home. You know, I think about this and go, regardless of whether Dina was maybe a little bit ignorant of the times, or maybe she was being rebellious, or maybe she even snuck out of the house and nobody knew. Regardless of her motives, there is no doubt that this should not have ever happened to her or anybody. She is most definitely, and we'll make this very clear, the victim of chapter 34. Shechem was the name of the man who took advantage of her. And if you're paying really close attention, you'll notice that he has the same name as the city that uh, they're camped outside of. So he is the prince of that city. He's the ruler, you might say. It's not uncommon for the community to be named after their leader. We see that many times. So this is probably what's going on. He is the leader of Shechem. They named the community after their leader. It's the city of Shechem, and this guy's name is Shechem. I just didn't want there to be any confusion there. And he forces himself on her. You know, this is still many, many years before God will give to Moses the law that Moses writes down and delivers the law for the people of Israel to live by. And within the law of Moses, there is actually laws and rules written down for if something like this were to ever happen, this is what's supposed to be the consequences of it, and this is how you move forward with it. But we're a long way from there. And even if the law of Moses was around, Shechem's not a follower of God. It's not like he would obey those things anyway. The reality is we don't know what the laws of the land were. We know what right is and wrong is, and it comes out very clear in the text, but we don't know what the laws were in Shechem. And I'll tell you, it does feel a little bit like the wild, wild west in this part of the Bible. Who's gonna hold who accountable? Who's in charge here and what is going to happen? So this is what happens next. You ready? Look at verse six. Then Shechem's father Hamer went to talk to Jacob, all right? Let's not miss the detail here. Father of the perp and the father of the victim are having a conversation in the victim's father's living room. That's exactly what's happening here. I can just imagine this was a tense room. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not have been done. No, we don't know what the laws were, but we know how Jacob's family felt about it. And they flat out said, this should not have been done. They call it evil. That's what we see in verse seven. And they are stirred up as I think anybody would be. What is this evil thing that has been done to our sister? So you've got two fathers talking about how we move forward from this thing. You've got 11 brothers who are ready to go to town, literally ready to go to town, and they're talking. Now look at verse eight. But Hamer said to them, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to me as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take your daughters for yourself. Man, aren't you glad we live in a different era? Holy cow. We read this stuff and it's like, 
I, I, that's so different from the way we live. And uh, yes, this is a crime of the most evil kind that has happened, but the conversation is not so strange for the day. Communities intermarried with each other all the time. This is how they gained forces. They, they blended together. The recommendation that our two groups become one is not unusual for the day. So his solution to what is happening here, let's join forces. You know what? Let's, let's come together and let's, and let's uh, intermarry with our groups. And that's a whole other conversation in the Bible altogether. But I want you to see this the remarkable, strange weirdness of this. The two dads are talking about how to move forward after this incredible violation. And then we learn this detail. Look at verse 11. Then Shechem said, oh, wait a minute. Shechem's in the room too. The Bible clues us in it. So not only is it the two fathers, but Shechem is in there. Now, can you imagine Jacob and looking at Shechem in the eye? I don't care if he's the ruler of nothing and knowing what has happened to his daughter. Tense, I just, I feel tense. So then Shechem said to Dina's father and brothers, oh, the brothers have entered the room now. Oh, they're all one big group talking. Oh, I can't even imagine. And this is what he said. Let me find favor in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and, and, the, and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask. Only give me the young woman as my wife. And I, and I don't know, I talk, I'm not a mind reader. I wasn't there, but you know what? Jacob's had these conversations before. Different circumstances, but he's had the name your price conversation and revolving around a wife, and it never really worked out too good for him. This is not a strange conversation to him. This is how things were done. You pay prices for the wives. It's different culture. I've said this many times. It's hard to read personality and emotion into the text. It's just as hard to read it into the Bible and to get inside people's minds as it is when you receive a letter or a text message today. Have you ever received a text message and you're like, why are you so mad at me? Like, I'm not mad at you. It's hard to read emotion. That's why you got to throw some emojis in there, some smiley faces and some, you know, you got to let them know I'm not all that serious. We weren't there. All we have is what the text tells us. And what we know, Shechem, his dad, Jacob, and his brothers are having a conversation about how we move forward from this. And I don't know if they're being sincere or not. I don't know if Shechem is being sincere. I don't know what's in his mind at this exact moment, but they're trying to smooth things over and the offer is this. Let's intermarry our daughters together. Let's intertwine our communities and you name whatever price you want for, for Dina and I'll pay it. Now look at verse 13. Because their sister Dina had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully. So now we don't have to read anybody's minds here. We know this is deceitfulness. And they replied deceitfully and they spoke to Shechem and his father. And they said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all of your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, We'll take our sister and go. Now, this is fascinating to me. They bring up 
circumcision. Now, let me give you a little, just a, a rewind the clock of a couple months in our series. You might remember Jason French was here from CIY, and uh, he preached on Genesis chapter 17, where this whole thing about circumcision came up. And in real brief, Abraham said, to, or God said to Abraham, there's going to be a sign between us of this covenant that we're making together, and it's going to be circumcision. And God told Abraham, you, your son, and everybody that's ever born in your household has to be circumcised. And anybody in the future who will come and join you must be circumcised, all their men. And if they don't, you have no part of what this blessing is all about. Circumcision is a very big deal. It's this outward mark that identified God's people from everybody else. And so they bring up circumcision. And they said, I'll tell you what, you want our sister so bad, all your guys have to get circumcised. And in verse 18, it says this, their proposal seemed good. <laughs> uh, okay. Seemed good to Hamar and his son Shechem. The young man who was the most honored of all the fam father's family lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamar and his son Shechem went to the gate of the city to speak to all the men in the city. That's where all the business was done in the city gate. These men are friendly towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We will marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms and they'll settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamar and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. I read that and I'm like, Shechem is one persuasive dude. Just <laughs> being honest. He convinced every male in his community to get circumcised. So all I know is that if Shechem ever offers a course on public persuasive speaking, I want to take that course because... Somehow, he convinced every male that they should do this, and they all did it. And all I can say is this. I think God exercised a lot of wisdom when he commanded circumcision, and he said um, to them, all, all the males born in their communities, you do this by their eighth birthday. And there's a reason why this procedure is done before we bring our boys home from the hospital, okay? Let's let them have no memory of this, and let's move on. Chapter 25, or verse 25. <laughs> Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, some of you read ahead, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamar and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house. Oh, there's a little detail we learned. They kidnapped her too. She wasn't free to go home. And they rescued her. Then the sons of Jacob came upon them, 27, came upon the dead bodies and they looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and their children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Pezzarites, the people living in the land. 
We are few in number. And if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my whole household will be destroyed. But they replied, should we have treated our sister like a prostitute? Boy, I tell you, I think it's impossible to read Genesis chapter 34 and not bring some of your own emotion into it. And I'll tell you, if, if any of you have ever had an experience that's even halfway related to anything that Dina experienced in this chapter, I have no doubts that you've got some emotions about this chapter of the Bible that maybe others in this room will never experience like you. Last week, I was at the preaching and teaching conference in Joplin, Missouri, and and uh, I was sitting with a friend of mine, and as preachers often do, we talk about the stuff we're preaching about in our churches, and I said, we're in a series through Genesis, and we're on Genesis chapter 34, and he immediately goes, oh man, I hate Jacob in the Bible. <laughs> and I think we all can relate, oh, we understand, right? And I said, why do you hate him so bad? Why do you just dislike him? And this is what he said, because when Shechem did what he did to his daughter, Jacob did nothing. Now, I can see why he'd say that. And there's an argument to be made about what Jacob did and did not do, but that's not the point I'm trying to bring up right now. My friend is a father of four, three boys and a girl. His three boys are older, quite a bit older than his daughter. His daughter's the only one left at home right now. And he reads chapter 34 through the lens of a father that if anything like that had ever happened to his daughter, he would do X. Y, Z. It's impossible not to bring our circumstances and our emotions to the text from time to time. I think every one of us males in this room see ourselves a little bit in our mind's eye like this guy right there. <laughs> I'm just I'm being honest with you. Every male in this room, there are times in his life that he looks in the mirror and what he sees staring back at him is that guy right there. Now, now ladies, I'm gonna give you a little bit of insight into how your husband thinks and how he sees the world, all right? You're not paying for this today. This is all bonus material, all right? <laughs> there are times when you're like, why does my husband say the things that he does? Why does he act the way he does? Why does he respond the way he does? I'm telling you right now, it's because that is in him. Just a little bit. Because when he looks in the mirror, he sees that staring back at him from time to time. That is why your husband is the way he is from time to time. Okay? Just letting you know. If you've seen the movie Braveheart, you know it's about a man whose wife was murdered. And he avenges her death by murdering the man who murdered her. And in doing so, he rallied his countrymen to fight for their freedom. They fight back against a tyrannical king who created this whole oppressive system that led to his wife's death to begin with. And in the movie, he frees his country. And it's an awesome movie. It's hard for us guys to read chapter 34 and feel like we're watching the movie Braveheart and all the same emotions that come with it. And there's a part of us that when we read chapter 34, we have this emotional response to it. Yes, they had it coming. Good on them. But is that the right emotion? Did they all have it coming? 
You know, I mentioned already in this chapter, God is not mentioned one time at all in verse 34. And this is really a chapter about the downward trajectory of a family. That's really what this is about. Everything that happens in Jacob's family in chapter 34 is a downward spiral. And what do I mean by downward? What I mean is that every circumstance and every subsequent decision that they seem to make just takes this family further and further down. It just makes things worse and worse, everything that happens. This is the story of a family that is digressing from where they previously were to where they are now. And if you think about the story that we've been learning about Jacob, it wasn't all that long ago that Jacob should have been flying high spiritually, He's in not having a great time with his father-in-law and God appears to him and says, go home and I'll be with you. He heads home. God protects him from his father-in-law. God helps heal a relationship with his brother Esau. You would think that Jacob is at the height of his spiritual walk with God. But now it seems like Jacob's life is a series of really bad decisions starting with the fact that he didn't go where God told him to go, but rather he did what? He bought a piece of land that he should have never bought. He put his family in the kind of danger that they should never have been put in. This is a really bad move on his part. It's where Jacob said, I'm gonna take it from here. And you know what this reminds me of? And maybe you've drawn this same parallel. Doesn't Jacob's life right now look a lot like his second cousin Lot's life? Do you remember when Abraham and Lot separated years and years earlier? Lot was Abraham's nephew. And and Lot went towards the city of Sodom, a very wicked city. And you can follow the trajectory of his life. He moved towards Sodom. He pitched his tents right outside Sodom. And then he eventually moved into Sodom. And then he eventually suffered the fate of Sodom. And it wrecked his family. This feels very much like history repeating itself. Jacob is setting up shop just outside this terrible city, endangering his family. And this leads to something else. That bad decision leads this downward trajectory into a life of deception for his children. Now, no one can deny a horrible thing happened to, to Dina. But instead of the brothers declaring war immediately, which would have, like, for us, that would make sense. No, they chose deception. They, they chose to, to pretend to seek peace with Shechem and his father and the people of that city. They lie. They lie to him. And they agree to intermarry with the people of Shechem. They even take something as personal as their covenant with God, circumcision, to add to the deception. So you have Jacob making a bad decision and their family starts to do this. And that leads to deception And then that leads to vengeance. When the men of Shechem were too sore to fight back, Levi and Simeon launched a surprise attack. And how I think it went down is that all the men were recovering in their homes and that Simeon and Levi quietly went to every home and killed every male in the whole community. House to house. Then the rest of the brothers joined in and they looted the city. They took everything of value, including women and children. They just took them. 
And what you're seeing right here, this downward trajectory of a family, where they are today, this family that is supposed to be holy and set apart and not like anybody else in the whole world, they look exactly like everybody else in the whole world. That is where they are. It's this downward trajectory. And what is our response to this stuff? It's not good on these brothers. It's man. Look at the evil on every side of this chapter. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that before, and I don't mean revenge killing, but I wonder if you've ever had the experience where your life felt like one big domino effect where every decision led to a worse scenario and every decision led to a worse scenario after that. And you're like, man, I, I can sense this downward trajectory in my own life. Every day just seems to get worse and worse. And then one day you look at the mirror and you see somebody staring back that doesn't even look like a follower of Christ anymore. And you don't even recognize the person that's looking right back at you in the mirror. And you wonder, where did my life go? How did it get to, to where I am today? I am so far removed from that day when I confessed Christ as my Lord and I was baptized and I followed Jesus. I don't recognize this person looking at me anymore. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that. But I will tell you this. There is very good news for you. And the very good news is that it's not too late. You have air in your lungs. It is not too late. If the trajectory of your decisions are taking you and driving your life in the totally wrong direction, it's time to make a move and it's time to change your trajectory. And we come to chapter 35 and I'm just gonna say this, praise God, there's a chapter 35. Because 34 was all bad news, but praise God, there's a chapter 35. Now look at chapter 35, verse one. What does it say? Then God, two words into it, and God is back in the story. Praise the Lord. No mention of God in 34, but in 35, God's back on the scene. He didn't go anywhere. Just nobody was listening. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Can I put my own words on this? This is my own take on it, just me. I think this is God saying to Jacob, are you done yet? Have you had your little experiment with life? Are you done? Are you ready now to obey me like you're supposed to? Get up and go where I told you to go and quit messing around. I, I think this is the heart of what we read here at the beginning of chapter 35. Get going, Jacob, because the longer you stay here without making any changes in your life, you're gonna continue to head straight down. You're gonna take your whole family with you. I want to believe, and I don't know this for sure, but I want to believe that Jacob in chapter 35 is possibly waking up to the reality that he has not fully obeyed God in his life. He's a long way from his reconciliation with Esau. And he's a long way away from that moment. And maybe he's waking up to that reality that I should have never settled down outside of Shechem. I should have never bought that piece of property. He came up short on his obedience. And so many of his problems stem from there. And I think about our walk with Christ today. And I believe it's true that many of the problems that we experience as a Christian probably are the result or could be the result of what I would just refer to as incomplete obedience. 
In other words, like we know what the Lord wants us to do, and for a while, that's what we were doing, but then we stopped. Incomplete obedience. I didn't follow through. I know this is the way the Lord wants me to live, but I don't live that way anymore. Incomplete obedience. Jacob makes peace with his brother. He's supposed to head to Haran with his father, but he doesn't. He buys land and sets up shop. He started there, but he left the journey incomplete. And it created all kinds of problems for his life. It reminds me of something that Jesus said one time to the church in Sardis in the book of Revelation. So now we're gonna jump from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, all the way to Revelation to the last book of the Bible. And Jesus has this to say to a church in the community of Sardis. He says this, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And then he says, wake up. In other words, it's not too late for you. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished. You started down the right road, but you stopped. Why? Why? And then he says in verse three, remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Have you, has any of us been guilty of incomplete obedience? You started down the road, but you stopped. And has there been a downward trajectory in your life since? I don't know your story, only you can answer that question. But if you are saying, yeah, I think there is some truth to that. There are are parts of that that relate to me or all of it relates to me, whatever it is. Let me just tell you, if I were in your shoes, this is what I would do. I would get down on my knees before God today. I would repent and I would say, God, let's do some business together and let's get this thing headed in the right direction. Because you may be experiencing your chapter 34, but I promise you, you can have a chapter 35. Jacob did. And you can too. God told Jacob, leave that place and go to Bethel. Now, what is Bethel and why is it so important? We've come across this word many times. Bethel is a very special place between God and Jacob. It's the place where God gets Jacob's attention. It's a place of worship. It's a place where God and Jacob have got to get on the same page again. And he says, Jacob, get your hiney to Bethel right now. I don't know if hiney is in the Greek or actually the Hebrew, (laughs) but I think the intensity of the word is there. I'll say it again, 34, there's no mention of God in that chapter, but in 35, God is mentioned 10 times. And it's a stark contrast in behavior when God is involved. Look at verse two. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourself and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out and the terror of God fell on the towns around them so that no one pursued them. I think this is Jacob saying, okay, you got my attention, God. 
okay? And I know that I can't go to Bethel and be with you when so much of the world is dripping off my family. So he says, all of you, hand them in. All of your idols, I want them right now. We're like, there were idols in Jacob's home? You better believe it. Why else do you think he was having so much problems? Why do you think he couldn't hear from God? Why do you think his life was in such a downward trajectory? Why did he make all the bad decisions? He was leaving God out of it. Now, his father-in-law was an idol worshiper, and you might recall a few chapters back when they ran away from their father-in-law, his wife stole all the family idols, and she never gave them back. She didn't destroy them. They've been with them ever since. Their household has grown. They've gained more people. There was a presence of idols in his home, and Jacob did nothing about it. And so he says, we cannot go up and be with God. We cannot get to where we're supposed to be as a family, as a household, until we clean house. He says, hand them in. This is Jacob taking some charge of his family finally. And they all turn him in and they take off their jewelry and all the different things and he buries them in the ground. Don't miss the significance of this. He buries them. He puts them to death. They're not going with us. And then they, and then after they've cleaned house, it's then they go to Bethel. And there's this interesting detail. Don't miss it. Nobody, verse six, nobody, or verse five, Nobody messed with them. There was a fear of God in all the people of the land. Why is that an important detail? It's because your sons don't go and murder an entire city and no one notice. Oh, I, I bet you there were plans to destroy Jacob's family. But when Jacob got his house in order, God protected him. And let me tell you, when we feared the Lord... We don't need to fear anybody else. And when we're living in God's will and doing things God's way, then rest assured, you can depend on God's provision and his protection. And that's exactly what's happening in Jacob's house. They killed all the idols and they got solely focused on God and he goes to Bethel. He worships the Lord there, sets up a stone pillar to God, pours out a drink offering on it and he begins to change the trajectory of his family. 34 takes him down, chapter 35 starts to bring them up. Are they going to be a perfect family moving forward? Oh, far from it. Uh, you could even say, you ain't seen nothing yet. But let me tell you something about this family. The spotlight right now is on Jacob. And now it's going to move again. And it's going to shine down on one of Jacob's boys. And his name is Joseph. And out of this evil brood of sons that Jacob has raised, up will come Joseph, who will change the world. And Jacob, or Joseph is going to be the driving force for the rest of our study in Genesis. Friends, I'll tell you, the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to stay in a downward trajectory in our life or our family. We don't have to be like Jacob, and we can be like Jacob at the same time. No matter how many times that you have failed the Lord, and we all have, there's not one person's room that hasn't failed the Lord. No matter how many times you fail the Lord, you can go home again. You can repent and you can obey. You can go back to Bethel and get on a right footing with the Lord. 
You may have to bury some stuff. You may have to get rid of some stuff. You may have to admit, Lord, I've been doing it my own way and I need you to, to be my leader. But there is an up in your story. You might be in chapter 34. God wants you to get to 35. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the word of God says to us today. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your holy word. I thank you, Lord, for how you, you take care of us and how you bless us and how you guide us. And Lord, my prayer today is a simple one. I would just pray, Lord, that we would make you the leader of everything. That, Lord, we would step out each and every day of our lives knowing that you are out in front and we are following you. And Lord, I pray for anybody in this room today that maybe feels a lot like Jacob in a sense. I'm living this domino effect and I'm going the wrong way. And sometimes I look in the mirror and I don't recognize the Christian that I thought I was gonna be. But Lord, that's our chapter 34. And we know there's a chapter 35. Lord, we may have left you out of this season of our lives, but you didn't leave us. And I know you wanna be in our chapter 35. So Lord, help us, we pray. Open our eyes. Help us see what it is that you have for us. Lord, may we all come back to Bethel in a sense, come to you and worship and change the trajectory of our lives. This is our prayer, Lord. We thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, making all the things that we're talking about today possible. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.